0: Pick up the story, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, if you'd like to follow along. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today, this scripture, Is fulfilled in your hearing. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now that as we look at uh, Jesus' mission statement, I pray that you would reveal to us what it is he came to do, what it is he did, and what difference that can make even for us here in the year 2020. Help us, Lord, even today, that through your word, we might Meet Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So I want to talk about Jesus mission statement, and it's it's a statement, it's it's a it's a piece of jargon that I, I think is familiar to a lot of us these days. Those of you who live in corporate life know how important mission statements are to the functioning of each corporation. Every corporation has one, and occasionally these Mission statements are revised to great fanfare, and there's a meeting, and there's a celebration, there's a presentation, and then it seems like everyone goes back and keeps doing what they've been doing all along. Someone defined, I believe it was Dilbert, he defined mission statements this way. A mission statement is a long, awkward sentence that simply demonstrates the inability of management to think clearly. I don't know if you can relate to that. It depends on uh, the management at your company, I guess. But it strikes me, and it strikes everybody who reads the gospel, how how Luke talks about a lot of activity that Jesus is doing, especially there early in his ministry and how the crowds are gathering to him. But the thing that Luke records specifically is this particular event in Jesus' life where he goes into the synagogue, where he finds this passage, Isaiah 61. And he tells, he reads it and he tells the people, this is what I've come to do. This is what I have fulfilled. As I mentioned, he's back in the little village where he's from. This is not an unveiling that took place in Jerusalem or in some great center city. This is something that took place in a little country town, in a little country church. His synagogue, maybe there were a couple dozen people in attendance that day. And they all knew him as Joseph's son, as the son of the carpenter, just a, a regular down-to-earth country guy. And so he reads the scripture, and that was, that was good, showed that he could read, I guess. But then he said something that must have blown everybody's mind, that made everybody stop and wonder. He said, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing." He's saying, this word I'm reading from Isaiah, this isn't about something that happened long ago, or it's not something about something that's going to happen far in the future. This is about right here, right now, and it's not about someone else, Jesus says. It's all about me. You can't overstate the significance of the claim that Jesus was making when he said, after reading the book of Isaiah, that this is all about me. He's he's claiming for himself that he is the fulfillment of everything the prophets spoke about. And especially in first century Judaism, the people were earnestly and fervently studying all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the other prophets for hints of what the Messiah would look like, for hints of what the restoration would look like, because in the first century, the people of Israel were not free. They were oppressed and humiliated. They were a province of the Roman Empire, and they were desperate to be returned to the freedom, the prosperity, the power, and the prestige that they they had under David way back years and centuries before that, and the prophets painted a picture that one day a son of David would come, and he would restore, and he would rebuild, and he would renew Israel to its previous greatness. So everyone was looking for that. Everyone was waiting for that. One way you could say is that the deepest longings of the people of Israel in the first century, the deepest longings of of Jesus' contemporaries, were that somehow God would fulfill the promises in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel and the book of Jeremiah, and he would work and he would begin to restore the nation of Israel and they would conquer the Romans, and Israel once again would be the great superpower. And Jesus comes along, the carpenter's son, he's back in his little village in a little dusty synagogue, a couple dozen people present, and he says, guess what? This is all about me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, because I've come, everything is different. Because I've come, I've come to bring the kingdom of God into our midst, and I've come to solve our deepest problems. I've come to be the realization of your greatest hopes and dreams. And if you'll just look at me, then you will find it. So let's try to unpack this. What was Jesus' life if we look at it through this lens? First thing I want you to see, if you look carefully at this passage, at Isaiah 61, you see that what he's talking about is a prophecy of proclamation. The Spirit of the Lord is a is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim that the oppressed are set free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came as a preacher, came with an announcement. Even if everything looks the same, he's saying, everything has changed. Even if you think, I'm just the son of Joseph the carpenter, actually the reality is I'm the final son of David. I'm the one the prophets have spoken about. I'm the very son of God and I'm the one who's come to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. And even if it looks like our nation is still poor and oppressed, a new reality has dawned. Even if it looks like the Romans continue their control of our nation, The the new kingdom is at work among us. But Jesus says this is news that he's announcing. It's not an opinion to be argued. His message is not a rule to be followed. It's not an example to follow. It's not a lifestyle to live. It's not a social program to implement. The kingdom of God has come, and he's come to proclaim that reality. What he's announcing is that his mere presence as the very Son of God, as the Messiah, has inaugurated a new age, even if they couldn't see it. He's inaugurated the new age by faith through his proclamation. And if you follow along in the ministry of Jesus, you see he continues to preach that everything has changed as a result of what he has done. A little bit later in the book of of Acts, he does preach good news to the poor, but it's with a twist. He says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Telling the people that it's the poor who actually own the kingdom of God. He is preaching freedom. A little bit later in the book of Acts, a woman comes to him and he lays his hand on her and he says, woman, you are set free. He came to offer true freedom. He even came to proclaim sight to the blind. You know, one, one of Jesus' go-to miracles when he met a blind man, and apparently there were a lot of blind people in the society that day. When he met one, he would, he would give them sight. But then another place, in John chapter 9, verse 39, he says, It's for judgment that I've come into this world so that the blind will see and that those who see might become blind. So Jesus came to announce that he was bringing in a new reality and he was operating in a dimension that people were not necessarily familiar with. And Jesus was bringing this kingdom, a kingdom of redemption that we have to believe in before we can see. His power was revealed and his power was made known to everyone who who saw him. So in a sense, when Jesus came, nothing changed. People looked around and they said, well, everything is exactly the way it used to be. But Jesus' proclamation is that in reality, because he's come, everything has changed. And so that's the challenge even for us today. What does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to hear the voice of Christ? What does it mean to meet Christ? In one sense, it means that when we meet him, nothing changes. We're still us. We're still living our lives. We're still living in this broken world. We still have problems and issues and, and work we've got to do and bills we've got to pay and people we've got to deal with and, and problems we've got to solve. But in another sense, everything has changed because the Messiah has come and he's fulfilled all of the promises that God has given through the prophets. Paul says in another place that all of the promises God has made, they're all yes in Christ. And Christian ministry, ministry for the followers of Christ is to point people to Jesus and to affirm to people that the change you want, the change you're looking for, it comes through meeting, through encountering and through trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ. In some ways, it's actually an easier case to make today because Jesus now has a track record of 2,000 years and of billions of lives of people who've been changed because they've met him. But as a church, we gotta remember that our first and foremost, what we're doing is announcing news and challenging people and encouraging people to simply believe the good news that the Son of God, the fulfillment of all of God's promises has come. He was born on the first Christmas, he died for us on the first Good Friday, he rose again on the first Easter, and he gives us hope for eternal life. But Jesus didn't just announce the good news, he also actualized the good news. He wasn't just talking about it, he made it happen. And if you know the story of the life of Jesus, he fulfilled the vision of the Messiah by offering restoration everywhere he went. When he met someone who was oppressed by demons, he set them free. When he met people who were poor, when he saw people who were hungry, he said in John chapter 6, I have compassion on these people. They've been with me all day, and they haven't had anything to eat. And then that led to him feeding the 5,000 people who had been with him all day. When he met people who were blind, he gave them sight. When a leper came up to him and said, Lord Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He said, I'm willing. He reached out his hand, he touched the leper, and he was clean. He, Jesus' work throughout his life was to actualize the news that he proclaimed there in the synagogue. The life of Jesus was simply this. He was bringing heaven to earth in these situations and in these encounters and in each of these interactions. And through that, he was revealing the kingdom of heaven and revealing that the kingdom of heaven is not just a matter of talk, but it's a matter of action. You know, it's it's important to note that Jesus did a lot of miracles. He was perhaps the most powerful man who ever lived. He made the lame walk. He made the blind see. He cleansed the leper. He cast out demons. He even raised people from the dead on more than one occasion. But his miracles were not just magic tricks. They were, each of his miracles was an expression, a picture of redemption, a picture of the restoration that he was bringing a picture of what the restoration of all things ultimately will look like. And so as the king bringing the kingdom with everyone he met, with everyone he encountered, he gave them a picture of the restoration he was going to bring. He gave them a picture of the hope that he had to offer everyone who trusted in him. And that's also important for the ministry of the church. The ministry of the church is to spread the good news that Jesus has come, but the ministry of the church is also to be the good news that Jesus has come. And because Jesus has come, we are working to bring heaven to earth, working with the power that God has given us, whatever power that might be, the personal power, the relational power, the financial power, the the expertise we have to bring heaven to earth in whatever way that we can. Jesus told his disciples that you should pray, our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he showed his disciples that the work that he's called us to do is to bring heaven to earth. The longing in our prayer should be that heaven come down to earth, and then the the, the heart of our labor should be to find ways to use the resources God has given us to bring heaven to earth and to reconcile men to God and to restore the brokenness in this world around us, to use the resources that God has given us to work with compassion, to work with generosity, to work with care, to work in concer- with care and concern, and to use the power that we have to help those who are poor, those who are oppressed, those who are stressed and those who are depressed, to help those who are heartbroken, to help those who are in agony, to help those struggling with illness and disability, to help those who are dealing with injustice or who are being victimized, to experience some of the freedom, experience some of the hope of the kingdom of God. So we're not just proclaiming not just proclaiming the favorable year of our Lord, not just proclaiming good news for the poor and freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind and the the freedom of the oppression, but we're doing what we can to actualize that, doing what we can to make that a practical and functional reality all around us. See, for the church, for the followers of Christ, our proclamation that the kingdom of God has come has to be combined with our prayer that God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and then it needs to be combined with our work towards bringing the kingdom of God making the kingdom of God a reality in our midst all of these things work together so Jesus announced the coming of the kingdom of God then he actualized the coming of the kingdom of God through his encounters especially with his encounters with those who were in need his encounters with the broken his encounters with the hurting when he showed them the restoration of the kingdom of god and let them experience it firsthand and then thirdly I want you to see that he accomplished he accomplished the reality of the king, coming of the kingdom through his victory it wasn't just talk it wasn't just power actually, for Jesus to bring the kingdom of God, he had to confront the kingdom of darkness. He had to pay the price for it to come. Jesus' whole life is about the price the Messiah had to pay and the victory the Messiah had to win in order to bring the kingdom of God into our midst. The Bible says that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become truly rich. The Bible shows us that Jesus was the most free man who ever walked this earth, and yet he let his freedom go. He laid his freedom aside and allowed himself to become bound that we, through his, through, him being bound, through him being arrested, might experience true freedom. Jesus was the most innocent, the only righteous man who's ever lived, and yet he allowed himself to be condemned so that we could be forgiven, Jesus was the one person who, through all through all eternity, as long as he had existed, exi- had existed in perfect communion with God the Father in heaven, in perfect love relationship with his Father in heaven, in a perfect family. And yet, Bible shows us, history shows us that he allowed himself to be forsaken. Some of his last words were. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer from heaven was something like this. You were forsaken so that people like us could be forgiven. You were forsaken so that we could know intimacy with God through through you. So Jesus came to this world and he gave himself, he, he engaged in battle with the kingdom of darkness so that he could bring restoration to all of us. He endured all of the brokenness of this world, all of the injustice, all of the agony, all of the pain, so that he could bring true restoration to this world. He became poor so that he could redeem our poverty. He endured injustice so that we could know mercy and grace. And that's the story of the life of Jesus. That's a story of Jesus from, from this point on, as he endured being misunderstood, as he endured being betrayed by the people he was dependent on, as, he, as the, the powers of his day uh, chased him down and arrested him, abused him, and crucified him, and even as he endured spiritual darkness and death. He endured all that, he went through all that so that he could bring true restoration to everybody who would trust in him. And that's the hope that we have. The last thing he says here in verse 19 is, is he says, he's come to proclaim the year of God's favor. Now that's important, that might be lost on, on you and me, but it wasn't lost on Jesus' hear, hearers. What he was talking about there was the year of Jubilee, and in Leviticus 25, God institutes this this rule that every 50th year in the life of Israel would be a year of Jubilee, a year that all debts are canceled, all the prisoners are set free, all the slaves are let go. And all the land is returned to the people who it belongs to. And all the land is given a year of rest. And that was supposed to happen every 50th year. And it was supposed to be uh, a year, one year out of every 50, that was spent celebrating and resting in the goodness of God and the grace of God and the love of God. And it was instituted in the, by Moses, uh, according to Leviticus 25. But here's the thing historians of the nation of Israel tell us it never actually happened. Israel never had a sustained period of faithfulness and stability over 50 years where they actually kept count and then celebrated the year of Jubilee together. So, it was this great ideal back in Leviticus? That was never experienced by the people of Israel. Even though the prophets spoke about it, you know, Jesus is just reading here what Isaiah spoke about, that Isaiah was promising that one day the favor, the year of God's favor would be upon us. But it was something that was never implemented while Israel was under the law, it was never implemented by, by the people of God throughout the course of the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring the year of God's favor. I'm going to set the prisoners free. I'm going to, to set the slaves free. I'm going to cancel everybody's debt. And I'm going to offer rest to everybody who comes to me. And that's the, the promise that he offers to you and to me and to everybody who encounters him personally. Jesus' invitation in and Matthew 11, verse 28, goes this way. Come to me, all you who are burdened, all you who are crushed by the brokenness of this world, by, the, by your own brokenness, by your own sin, by your own shame. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for." your souls. Our mission is to bring people to Jesus, that somehow, some way, they might find in him the rest and the hope that every soul longs for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace and the success of Jesus. I thank you that he was about his mission. I thank you that he was faithful to his mission. I thank you that he accomplished his mission when he rose from the dead. And I pray that you would help us to live by faith in him. Help us to lean into the rest that he secured for us, and then help us to share that rest and share that hope with others, we pray in his precious name. Amen.